0: Hello, it's Michael McGalley. Welcome to the Age of Independence, the podcast from Indie.biz. You know, I think we're all trying to understand the economic implications of the crisis that we're living through. I know that I am. And it's easy to say that the crisis happened in the context of a strong economy. While that's true, it's also true that our economy is not one thing that we can measure the health of in simple terms. Some parts of our economy have been very strong since the last recovery, but others have never really come back from that Great Recession. Today's guest is John LeCherry, President and CEO of the Economic Innovation Group. I've known about John and and EIG primarily from their work on opportunity zones, but in this conversation, John helps to set some context to better understand the current crisis and also provide some key lessons from the previous one. I think that everyone needs to get smarter about our economy and how it actually works, and I hope that this conversation helps to shed some light on things. I know it did for me. Uh, John LaCherry, thank you for being on the show. I'm mean, looking forward to the conversation. And I know that uh, Economic Innovation Group has been looking at the uh, at the crisis and really put out clarion calls very early. So I'm, I'm excited to get your, your perspective. Glad to be here. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about um, uh, Economic Innovation Group, who you are and what you guys do? EIG is a bipartisan
1: uh, nonprofit research and advocacy organization. We're based in D.C. We work on issues related to economic dynamism and the well-being of communities. So we look at the geography of how economic growth or economic distress is distributed across the country. Uh, We look at how uh, economic growth cycles affect American communities. uh, And in this past uh, recession and, and expansion, how it left a lot of American communities behind. And we also look at the issue of economic dynamism. Uh, what does it mean to have a dynamic and healthy economy, and uh, and how has that changed over time? So we study those issues on the research side, and then we work with policymakers on the solution side to uh, address some of the challenges that we
0: uncover in our research. Mm-hmm. And so you're different than a think tank. You're not just publishing on this, but you're actually advocating for policy. That's right. What, what do so economists have been very concerned about uh, the, the dynamism of, of, of the American economy for um, a while, right? Really, you know, since probably before the, uh, the Great Recession. What do we mean when we talk about a dynamic economy and, and how were we doing before this crisis started?
1: Sure. Well, when you talk about a dynamic economy uh, in the way that we define it, economic dynamism has to do with the rate and scale of creative destruction. Uh, So if creative destruction is the economy reallocating its resources and becoming more productive and creating new things and processes and businesses to uh, to propel itself forward, then dynamism refers to the rate and scale of that process. So how intense is it? Uh, How much are we seeing it? How how pervasive is it throughout the economy? And the Great Recession was a real reset period. Uh, Up until that point, um, economic dynamism really wasn't at the forefront of uh, a lot of the debate over the economy. Uh, but what we saw with the recession and afterwards is uh, a collapse in many of the indicators, principally the rate of business formation uh, that had traditionally been part of that equation of economic dynamism. And so you saw the startup rate hit its all-time low, uh, its record low uh, during the recession. Actually, it was so severe that the, the death rate of businesses for the first time on record crossed the, the birth rate. So you had more businesses dying than being born and not just for one year, but for three consecutive years that had never happened before. And then even as the steady economic expansion has, has followed over the past decade, you've barely seen a, a nudge upwards in the rate of business formation. So there looks to have been permanent structural damage to the centerpiece issue for our economy, which is entrepreneurship and the chain reaction that new business formation sets off in the economy it's it's crucial to productivity gains it's crucial to co- crucial to competition within industries to job creation uh to innovation throughout the marketplace uh so without upstream the birth of new businesses at a healthy rate you don't have downstream the kind of economic benefits and outcomes that we've traditionally assumed would always be there especially in periods of steady economic growth so this is really the first startup-less recovery uh that we've experienced and now going into a new crisis this issue comes to the forefront again, because we still haven't recovered from the last one in terms of economic dynamism. We've also looked at issues of worker mobility and how that factors into this. Mm -hmm. So at what rate are workers switching in and out of job arrangements? And typically you want to see a lot of quits and starts. You want to see workers reallocating themselves into better and better arrangements. That's how they get Uh, wage gains. And that's how we get uh, broader benefits throughout the labor market, including for people who are not attached to the labor market right now, but need a point of entry. So that switching process, which again, is closely tied to new businesses, uh, has really broken down. Geographic mobility as well, much lower rates of geographic mobility today than we had even just 20 years ago. Uh, So really on every measure and across every industry, and across every region of the country, we've seen a significant decline in those standard measures of economic dynamism. And that remains a, a principal focus for my organization.
0: And w- to what extent do, are we able to identify the root causes of, of that of that decline?
1: Uh, it's an it's a issue of a lot of debate uh, among economists and, and policy experts. There's, uh, like all complex things, there's probably not a singular cause, uh, but we have some guesses as to, well, first of all, if you take a step back, it's easy to understand, I think, why you saw a big decline with the recession, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Great Recession hit all of these different aspects of economic life that are so crucial to the the idea of taking risk, starting a business, moving to a different area to, to take a job. Uh, you know, it, it hit the housing market. Home equity is a big source of startup capital. It wiped out people's personal savings and lines of credit also key sources of startup capital uh and it just created a very risk averse environment because it was a bad economy and you know so you have an intuitive response there of entrepreneurs pulling back and uh and taking a safer path that that makes sense for the short term but it doesn't explain why we saw a long-term lack of recovery afterwards and so there's a number of different factors that that people have guessed one is demographic factors as we get older and as we have uh, much slower rates of population growth uh, than we've had in the past. That contributes, and, and in some cases, uh, researchers have found a massive 50% plus relationship between the decline of new business formation and demographic trends. So some have looked at regulatory changes and the complexity of, of regulation and how that's gotten in the way of uh, new entry into into different economic sectors. So it's a lot of different causes. but. Uh, more fundamentally the concern is that it's not a top priority for policymakers this is not a, a centerpiece issue and the what should be considered an urgent problem to be addressed this massive decline in american entrepreneurship is really an afterthought for republican and democratic administrations it doesn't uh, it doesn't really matter this is not a political red versus blue this is a jump ball issue that nobody has claimed
0: obviously Right now, with the unemployment numbers that we saw today, the, the numbers last week were shocking, right, at 3.3, and we've now doubled those. What other indicators are you guys looking at to get a picture of the damage that this crisis is, is causing to our economy so far?
1: The unemployment numbers are shocking, and we really don't have an analog for what we're seeing right now, so we almost need to invent a new kind of terminology to deal with it, because simply saying we've never seen this before or this is unprecedented—that's that's, that's going to lose its potency mm-hmm. here after a few weeks of of, uh, of record after record being shattered. Yeah, so uh, so it's a huge concern, and the unemployment numbers are some of the most immediate that we have access to. So that's that's um, it's one of the earliest indicators we're going to get. Uh, most most federal economic data it lags, and sometimes it lags very significantly. So. Uh, where we're looking includes things like bankruptcy filings. You know, we want to see for commercial bankruptcies and personal bankruptcies. How are we seeing a big uptick in those as a result of the economic uncertainty and the devastation that this crisis has wrought across many different sectors of the economy? We're also going to be looking to private sources of data, so proprietary data from uh, whether it's a LinkedIn kind of a hiring, a hiring and job uh, matching company that you'd expect to see. Uh, uh, ripple effects of the current crisis on platforms like that. Uh, and many others, you think about payment processing uh, companies, financial services companies, they're going to have in real time, much better data to give us a, uh, a, a real time approximation for the kind of effect this is having on consumer spending on, on commercial transactions, uh, on hiring and firing on job searching, th- those types of things, uh, in real time, uh, fill gaps that federal statistics just can't fill. So over the next few weeks, that's actually one of our little projects is trying to figure out what is our dashboard? How are we evaluating this over time? What are the best sources of
0: data to, to, to meet those needs? In terms of the commercial and personal bankruptcies, do we have good r- near real-time sources of, of data on those?
1: Yeah, if you look at the PACER data, you can if you have access to, uh, to legal filings, uh, the actual filing data, uh, it's not literally real time, but it's pretty close to, Mm -hmm. um, contemporaneous. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that I've been so concerned about is this kind of mass extinction event for small businesses that this, that this is threatening. Why are small businesses so vulnerable to this kind of a economic shock? And I know we don't have analogs, but
1: well, sure. It's it's because it's because we don't have an analog that they're so vulnerable because we've never actually switched off the economy in this way before. We've never told entire sectors to stand down and stop operating. Um, so you'll have you'll have downturn events where revenues will drop, con- consumer demand gets affected and and that will that will kind of call. Uh, a certain percentage of different sectors in a severe downturn but the the sector survives and the the vast majority of the businesses in that sector survive uh even with a relatively severe downturn this is a on-off switch type of issue and we don't have a playbook for how to help businesses survive otherwise viable businesses right this is not right. this is not what economists would say is an endogenous uh, uh, shock. It's an exogenous shock. So it's coming from the outside, like a comet hitting, uh, or the, an asteroid hitting the earth. And, you know, that, that, that the businesses themselves in a normal environment are viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of this outside, uh, influence, uh, they have to shut down operations and we don't have a, we don't, we don't have a precedent for that. So we don't have a playbook for what do you do to keep a business alive and no business contingency plans for that. You know, no, no, I, I shouldn't say no, I would say very few businesses, very few business owners think I need to keep three or four months worth of uh, cash on hand to cover all of my operating expenses for it, for uh, uh, a period of time that who knows, it could be three or four months, it could be longer than that. And, and that's not part of the normal contingency planning of a business for small businesses. Uh, it, you know, JP Morgan Institute has great statistics on how much cash buffer they have, and you're talking about for for most businesses a matter of a couple of weeks or maybe a little bit more than that. So, in this environment, we're already we've already been on the clock for more than two or three mm-hmm. weeks. Uh, so, we already have the wave of closures happening. We already have insolvencies setting in. We already have, as you just mentioned, we have um, 10 million layoffs that have already accumulated. We have that's the equivalent of a of a great recession in a matter of of. A little more than a week, uh, so so that's what makes them particularly vulnerable. Is that they're, we have not built in any safeguards for such a mass extinction event, uh, such a shutdown event, and as a result, uh, you need a really robust federal response to to insert itself into that gap to to uh, to give businesses again that are otherwise viable. If they can get to the other side of the crisis, they can be profitable and survive. Uh, but it's getting them to that other side that's so critical, and this is not just for the businesses' sake, right? It's right. important to have businesses, and we uh, we don't want to see businesses fail for no reason. But the but the the real compelling reason to 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 intervene in a uh, in a really uh, significant way is that the recovery of the economy on the other side of this crisis depends upon those businesses or a healthy bulk of them being alive on the other side. That's how we get to a strong recovery. So if we want a V-shaped recovery that we didn't have after the Great Recession. We have to keep as many of these businesses alive as possible. If we lose them, then you've lost the attachment to the labor force that many of their workers have. You've lost the intangible things, the business relationships and supplier relationships, the all the the community effects of that uh, having to be restarted from scratch. It's a really profound drag on uh, on the recovery process. So there's a very self interested reason for us to spend a lot of taxpayer dollars now to intervene so that we don't have even worse options three or four months from now when we try to hit the switch back on. Yeah,
0: it feels a little bit like we're the business mortality that we're talking about is really a corollary to the disease itself, right? There is this sort of parallel in trying to flatten that curve before you get to uh, the domino effect as this thing spreads through the economy.
1: I think that's well said.
0: You know, March 18th, you guys put out a uh, a call for a very ambitious rescue package for American small businesses. Can you give an overview of, of that plan, uh, the plan that you and Adam Ozimek put out?
1: Uh, absolutely. So uh, in short, we're trying to take advantage of the fact that the federal government can borrow at essentially zero interest uh, right now. There's an extraordinary borrowing capacity that the federal government has to borrow cheap. And what we would like to see, what we proposed, uh, and it seems like a, a already a lifetime ago, uh, March 18th, uh, was, was to provide a lending facility that, that passed on that extremely low interest borrowing capacity directly to small businesses via uh, commercial lenders and to allow them to take fully insured, zero interest, long term loans that would allow them not just to survive a two or three week crisis. But to have the longer term certainty that they can weather the storm and come out just as resilient on the other side. So this would allow them to restructure their existing debt, uh, pr- perhaps make capital uh, purchases like buying a building uh, that they currently rent. So strengthening their balance sheet is really the goal here, not just short term survival, but anticipating that this is going to be longer than just a two or three or four week uh, issue. We need to give way more certainty than I think and we'll talk about this. In a moment than the current uh, uh, legislation provides. Uh, and so the idea here was, again, long term, zero rate, uh, uncollateralized, fully federally insured debt that would allow businesses to come out more resilient to improve their balance sheets and to maintain their operational footprint during the worst of the crisis. So again, they could snap back very quickly uh, after the crisis was over. Uh, and you know the scale of what we imagined would be necessary—you'd measure in the trillions—and uh, that was actually in the con- well in, within the consensus of economists, uh, really across the spectrum. When you look at what what businesses spend, just on payroll, uh, you're talking about well into the trillions. Uh, but when you broaden that out to rent obligations, mortgage obligations, utilities, all the other inventory, all these other expenses. Uh, again, it's a huge number. It's a mind-boggling number, but it's it's cheaper to do that now and especially to do it as a loan that gets repaid over time when interest rates already for the government are so low uh, than to wait for a bunch of these businesses to fail and then try to do multiple stopgap measures that have to be reauthorized almost as soon as they're passed because the demand is so high that it's going to be spent down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's unfortunately what we saw Congress do just last week was – Uh, A good start uh, in this program called the Paycheck Protection Program, but uh, short-term debt, uh, uh, the the idea was to to give loan forgiveness in exchange for maintaining payroll, which is admirable. But unfortunately, it constrains a lot of the necessary operational decisions that businesses make. Businesses, I don't think, are going to take on debt just to pay their uh, current employees if they don't believe there's a viable business In two or three months. And right now, I think the uncertainty is so high that a lot of businesses are not going to take that deal, even if it's forgivable debt. Uh, And so right now, we have a stopgap. And I think almost immediately, Congress needs to go back and look for ways to expand that, including by passing parallel uh, programs like the one I just mentioned that we had proposed a few weeks ago.
0: Hmm. Right. So the payroll protection. Program part of the CARES Act is like three hundred, almost three hundred and fifty billion, right? So not in the trillions, um, and not even that large a part of the two point two trillion dollar CARES Act, right? So, um, do you think? I mean, that's a very big gap. I think you had called for uh, the one point two to one point five trillion for this uh, um, this 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 program that that you had just outlined. Do you think that there's a political appetite for recognizing that or
1: I think there's a political appetite to do more than than the initial 350 billion. In fact, I'm I'm positive of that part. What I'm concerned about is not the political willpower to do something eventually. It's the capacity to do something before it's uh, before the crisis has deepened. Meaning, you can't wait for 350 billion dollars to draw down before you've passed the next round or started the next negotiation. It takes weeks for Congress to move, mm-hmm. right? And we don't have the, the difference of a couple weeks in this crisis is thousands of businesses, millions of jobs. So we cannot afford for this to be a, a stutter step type of approach. We really need on the front end. Not again, this is the reason to go big early is you're not just trying to deal with a short term triage. You're trying to inject enough confidence and, and stability back into the system that you can counter the toxic uncertainty and fear That is so pervasive right now throughout the small business community. That's leading a lot of business owners to say, I'd better just cut my losses now rather than bleed out and hope that something good comes in a few months. Uh, It's because we know it takes a long time to process loans. It takes a long time for this is, you know, the paycheck protection program is an SBA program. SBA is not known for for great speed. Mm -hmm. And even with some of the um, the new elements here that are going to make it easier to process. You still have to get the entire commercial lending community to buy into this, to use it, to offer it to their customers, to know how to process it themselves. There's an on-ramp time. So uh, again, that, that, that bottlenecking, every day that goes by that you don't have this type of lending facility available with capital flowing is more businesses dying that will never come back. Uh, it's more jobs being lost that will put an additional strain on the social safety net. Uh, so I think all of those things speak to the need for Congress to do a lot more on the front end. And overcorrect, if necessary, on the front end to counter what is a, a compounding crisis of fear, insolvency, lack of confidence that's going to crater all on its own a lot of businesses that might otherwise be viable.
0: So much to, to take in just thinking about what that starts to look like if we do start to have ten, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more businesses lost and just how, uh, imp- how, how long it will take to get those back.
1: Well, what we learned with the Great Recession, unfortunately, is that it can take a decade or more to get back to, uh, to a really strong labor market, to, to a, a healthier rate of business formation. Uh, you know, the, these things take a long time. They, they can be unwound very quickly, uh, but building them back up can take uh, decades or more. Uh, so again, that's the importance of a V-shaped recovery. And it's, and it's why it's so critical that we not let too many of these businesses die. Because they they are so crucial to the to the bounce back, uh, uh, not just for themselves but for the labor market and for the broader economy as a whole.
0: I think one of the the lessons of the Great Recession. I mean, small businesses didn't get any relief really after after that, right? And so that inflection point that you were talking about for American small businesses. What do you think the lessons are when you're looking back on, let's say, that 12 years from 2008 till now? What are the lessons that you think we really need to learn um, as we address the the current crisis?
1: Well, I've been kind of hard on Congress here, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll take an opportunity to give them a, a, a big compliment, which is by congressional standards, what we just saw passed was not just the biggest relief effort in American history. It was the fastest to come together. Um, so you know, a lot of frustration comes from the fact that the legislative process is not designed to move very quickly, especially when it's a massive uh, uh, piece of legislation like we just saw. Uh, but things are happening in real time in the private sector that are life or death for those businesses and those workers. Um, so that costs a lot of, causes a lot of frustration. But I think Congress really did come together as quickly as you could expect. Uh, and they they have already proven that some of the lessons that should have been learned from the Great Recession have been learned, which is exactly to your point. We didn't really have a debate about whether to give relief to small and larger businesses. We didn't have a debate about whether to give Significant relief to individuals displaced by this uh, crisis. It was a question of how much, and so there was no uh, there there no austerity measures being contemplated here. This was um, big injection of of uh, liquidity and relief into the system uh, as quickly as possible, and with really very few barriers to entry relative to what we would typically expect. So uh, I, I will quibble quite a bit with some of the specific methodology, but. We've already seen Congress learn uh, in both parties, learn the lesson of the last crisis, which is you can't afford uh, austerity measures in a situation like this. But this is much worse than the Great Recession and how compressed Mm -hmm. it is. So I think also folks who may may still think the Great Recession warranted a a different kind of response than uh, than what it got uh, would say that this is not being an exogenous shock, not something that was, you know, where you have moral hazard to worry about. That's not an issue here. We don't have any more. This is not the result of bad businesses behaving badly and then getting bailed out. This is a result of a pandemic. And so I think the willingness to do big things and to move quickly is was present here in a way that simply wasn't the case uh, with the last recession. Um, I think some of the unfinished business of the Great Recession that it's not clear whether we've learned this lesson is that when it comes to geographic distribution of growth, and the community question of you know are those top line national statistics translating to the local level? Uh, we need as we get further from crisis and into recovery, that's going to be one of the big questions mm. because during the during the recovery from the Great Recession, we it was a slow, steady recovery at the national level, and those national numbers looked pretty good, and I think that allowed us to have this national blind spot mm. that failed to account for the distribution of that growth. Was it actually reaching? And what, what had really happened was you concentrated a lot of the national growth in a very small number of places, mm-hmm. and that was those were the places that were carrying that national uh, uh, economic uh, number, uh, whether it be the you know overall GDP growth, whether it be even the you know new businesses that were formed, rapid, rapid, massive concentration in a few major metro areas for that. Uh, so we need to be more mindful of the geographic inequality that could be cemented here or, or deepened by by this crisis and also again the startup uh, depression that we saw after the great recession if we've learned our lesson from that experience we would apply that in much more intentional policy making to make sure that we are reviving and sustaining the entrepreneurial economy after this crisis and there's it's too early to say whether that's going to happen but that's that those are two barometers that we're using to know to to evaluate whether the response this time is going to look different than the one last time.
0: And I think that it's it, it's also going to be exacerbated by the fact that this crisis itself, the disease itself, is impacting different parts of the country differently and at different times. So that exogenous shock right. is actually is, is not it's not hitting us at one time um, the way that the the financial shock that that got us into uh, into the Great Recession did.
1: That's right, and we, we also have the the concern about we talk about this as if it's a a, a one time event, but the nature of a pandemic and something for, for which we don't have a vaccine and we don't have herd immunity yet is that we could you know very very well see a a resurgence of of infection later in the year, after things have calmed down for a period, and so we need to have a playbook now for what what we can do to make the next partial shutdown if we have to do this again a lot less problematic a lot less harmful for businesses and for workers than this time because we shut down the economy this time without any game plan we didn't have the tools in place and we didn't have even have consensus as to what the tool should be and that came together again relatively quickly by by uh dc standards but we still are going to feel the effects of just doing a shutdown before we had before we Mm -hmm. had a game plan so now we we need to be using this time now to think about if we have to do this again uh, what are the things we have to have in place so that's it's automatic, so that the response kicks in before Congress has to even convene?
0: Right. And, and I think that the other part of that is how do you do the restart? Right. We did the shutdown without without a plan. But then I think there's also a risk that we do the restart without a plan.
1: That's right. And I my guess is that there's going to be we're not going to hit a a day where everyone agrees to flip the switch back on. It's going to be a gradual return to normalcy. That you know could take a year uh, to really get back to a place where we we feel like the situation is so under control, we have a vaccine, all those things that build confidence both socially and economically. Uh, I, I think we should be prepared as if that's going to take a long time, and if we overprepare, that's great. <laughs> you know that that's the right problem to have. Uh, but right now, I think uh, we're still in that in between period where we're still dealing with today's immediate crisis and I'm not thinking yet about. How do we prepare for the next eventuality? Uh, and really, what Congress needs to do is think, is get into the anticipation phase, not the reaction phase. We've been in reaction mode for weeks and weeks now. Uh, we need to skate to where the puck is going and anticipate. For example, states are going to face a massive fiscal shortfall, a, a budgetary mm-hmm. crisis that's going to cause them to lay off uh, state employees. That's going to, you know, sta- states going through a, a fiscal shortfall like this on its own can plunge us into a recession. Just that one factor. So let's get ahead of that now. Let's let's prepare for that now and start providing relief that just like we, just the same logic that we're applying to relief for workers applies to relief for businesses, applies to relief for states. And only the federal government has the fiscal capacity to do that. And so the time to do that is now, not once it becomes obvious that the crisis is already here and having deep ripple effects. Hmm.
0: Um, I wanted to go back to the one of the lessons that you were talking about in terms of the the the, the variety of local um, impact of the Great Recession, right, and and how different parts of the, the country were affected so differently. Because I think, you know, people are often surprised, and I'm sure you have this experience as well, when you tell them that, the U.S. has seen a decline in business starts, and that actually business dynamism has been in a 30-year decline that really accelerated after after 2008. Um, and and most of the time, when I tell people that, they almost don't believe me because they think this is a you know has been a golden age of entrepreneurship. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how uh, that has has impacted different parts of of, of the com- country differently? It feels like such a big part of the the the, the challenge that we face as a nation.
1: Yeah, the geographic aspect of this uh is that after the great recession you saw you saw two things happening. One is the 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 rate and number of new businesses declined dramatically. So not just in relative terms but in 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 real terms we were actually producing fewer new businesses than we had in previous recoveries. Back when the economy was much smaller and the country population-wise was much smaller. So it's it's really startling. Uh, to, to, to line these recoveries up against each other and see how much of a drop off we were seeing, uh, in, in entrepreneurship. So it's the rate and scale on the one hand, and then it's the distribution of net new businesses on the other hand. So our research found in the first five years of, of the recovery that five Metro areas alone produced the same number of net new businesses as the rest of the country combined. And we had never seen anything close to that, uh, in previous recoveries where you had a much, you know, take the 1990s economic expansion as an example. It was a much more broadly distributed geography of startup growth. And when I say startups, I am not just talking about technology platforms, venture capital funded. I'm talking about the full range of new firms. So firms have an establishment, a physical establishment and a, and employees, not just uh, sole proprietors. And so, uh, that's, uh, that's a new problem we 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 don't again we don't we didn't have a playbook for what the right policy response might look like, and we didn't really have a great sense of what the effect on communities might look like as well, but what you have is essentially a smaller share of the country being exposed to what a truly dynamic local economy looks like than you've had in previous recoveries uh, and so that when you constrain the geography of entrepreneurship you're also constraining who has access to certain aspects of the American dream. I mean, entrepreneurship is a big part of that idea of economic, um, achievement of upward mobility of economic independence, uh, and if fewer and fewer people have that as a plausible life path. Uh, then I think it, what we worry about is it starts to change the character of the country. It starts to change the idea of what it means to be, uh, an entrepreneurial country, the way we've always taken for granted. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the interesting, and somewhat troubling side effects of all this is that it, it just constrains the number of people who are exposed to what entrepreneurship is. For example, millennials, I mean, this is exactly to your point. Cause I have the, I have the same experience when you talk about this, people, people have this, uh, really strong reflexive disbelief, right. uh, because, because, in, because culturally we've never, you know, the last 10 years or so we've, we we've valorized entrepreneurs and, whether it's in movies or podcasts or just popular media, people pay a lot of attention to successful founders, but they don't understand that those are an endangered species. Those are the exception, not the norm. Uh, and so there's all this mythology that's built around what it is to be an entrepreneur. People think the typical entrepreneur is a hoodie wearing, uh, you know, dropped out of college, working out of a, a garage. It's actually somebody. You know, peak age is closer to fifty. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, for an entrepreneur, uh, millennials are not the most entrepreneurial generation. They're the least entrepreneurial generation on record, meaning that they are starting businesses at a, a lower rate and they're working for startups at a lower rate than, uh, than other generations at the same period. So that's, that's a big cultural shift. It's not just an economic shift. It's a big cultural shift. And we don't yet know what the effects of that are going to be because this is a new shift. Uh, and I think it's one that we should take really seriously because if past is prologue, the same type of collapse we saw in the startup rate with the Great Recession, we're going to see something even more significant with this mm-hmm. one, and the consequences could be uh, profound.
0: And I think you know the other side of the declines in business dynamism, right, when you have more, more deaths than births of businesses, then your average business age and your b- average business owner age increases, right? So th- our businesses are older, and so they – Uh, will need to be the ones that fail, the ones that don't make it because we're not going to be able to – nothing that we do is is, going to get us out of the fact that we're about to lose a lot of businesses. And those younger people are going to need to start businesses – Right? There's going to be an opportunity there. I think in both of the things that you just said in terms of the, 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 the concentration in certain metro areas, but then also um, the, the, the other impacts of the declining dynamism, both start to paint a picture of what the need is going to be after all of this.
1: I think that's exactly right. And again, there's a, there's a direct tie in to how policymakers should think about this. They, they should be thinking about there's – there's a natural tendency to think about the businesses that are alive today – and organized and visible and knocking on your front door as a as a lawmaker. It's harder to think about businesses that have not yet been born and and whose existence depends on the choices we make now. Uh, so so it's a it's much less tangible, but it's really important to be forward-leaning on that. And I, and I do think the 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 awareness has shifted quite a bit since the last Recession. I think there is a broader awareness and a deeper appreciation for the role that new businesses play in the economy. And so I, I I do think we're in a better position to respond this time than we were last time. Uh, but it's still a big uphill climb because incumbent businesses just, they command the lion's share of attention from policymakers and they have, they have bent the economy and the, the policy and regulatory environment in their favor. Uh, you know, especially bigger businesses, they benefit from regulatory complexity Mm -hmm. Uh, complexity is a subsidy to larger uh, incumbent businesses because it it creates barriers to entry that new and small players can navigate, uh, and so you really need a wholesale different mindset from policymakers about what the goal should be and where their attention should be focused uh, than what we have today. And I I don't I don't think we're there, but I think this you know you could go one of two ways. It could either deepen the kind of concerns that we're talking about. Or it could be a wake-up call that says we really have to take a different level of commitment to this challenge than what we've had in the past.
0: Yeah, and I think in order for the policymakers to shift their mindset in that way, people need to shift their mindset. So speaking of shifting mindsets, I think a lot of people have been a little surprised to see the speed of the government's economic response. How have you seen Congress and lawmakers evolve over the course of the last two months?
1: Yeah. Early on, I think many policymakers were just trying to get their arms around the full dimensions of what we were going through. Like they wanted to check their instincts or or get a second opinion on things that they were hearing uh, from outside experts, from constituents, from the administration. So a lot of it was just fact-finding early on, is this really going to be as bad as I'm hearing? What are the effects of this? If it is that bad, what should we be thinking about? So a lot of it was very open-ended as that, and that quickly progressed into, um, I think a, a galvanized sense of, we need to go big quickly where I think there's some fracturing now is, is on the question of, can we sustain, like we've, we paid an enormous and really terrible toll for shutting down the economy. And even if you believe it was necessary to do that, those things can be true at the same time. It was necessary, but the, the penalty is really horrific, right? Because we've already lost a lot of businesses, a lot of jobs. This is going to cause a lot of pain in people's lives for a long time, even if we do everything right from here. So I think there's going to be a emerging debate about whether, whether the number one, whether that's sustainable for much longer, and number two, uh, whether we've overcorrected in ways that were not worth the cost and, and we're not there today, but I, I I think if we see, you know, we're at 10 million unemployment claims over the course of, you know, 10 days or so uh, if, if we see a few more weeks of that, I just don't think this is, I, I I don't, I don't think the political will to maintain the kind of blanket shutdown that we're seeing in huge parts of the country is going to be there anymore. I, I, I just think that that will, that will be the dam that breaks. So uh so th- a lot of it is a lot of it transitioned to that to when will we know that we can't keep this going when will we know if number one when will we, when will we know if we've done enough right on like on the small business side how, no one knows what the magic number is we're we're all to some extent guessing but how will we know when we've run out because these things don't become obvious necessarily in, in real time. So anticipating some of those uh, next steps, number one, number two, when will we know if we've gone too far on the, on the health side uh, and when the consequences uh, may be irreversible? So I think that's what's top of mind now for a lot of policymakers.
0: Right. There, there's been a lot of, at times, quite heated debate about how we should think about the terrible trade-offs between making the right call from a public health standpoint and from an economic economic standpoint. Do you have a framework for thinking about those choices?
1: I think what drove a lot of the willingness to accept
0: harsh economic
1: effects is that we had no idea what we were grappling with on the health side. We didn't have widespread mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. We didn't have enough equipment. We, we didn't have a uniform uh, playbook for how to respond at a local level, at a state level, at a national level. So when you have an environment that's that feels like it, it's very uncertain and you don't know whether it's going to affect you directly and you don't know whether your leaders have any control of the situation, then people I think are much more willing to accept a big pullback on economic and social activity. But that's a temporary thing, right? We, we should quite soon have widely available testing, random testing, you know, widely available equipment, uh, no hospital shortages, all, all that kind of stuff. Those are solvable problems. And th- that allow us to take more a more targeted approach on the economic side. So when you don't know how pervasive a thing is, uh, you have to do a overreaction on the economic shutdown. Once you have your your handle on the spread of the infection and who's who's contagious and. Uh, and, and the means to respond to it, then you can be much more picky about how you respond and uh, and that and and really isolate the areas that are the most at risk, isolate the people who are the most at risk, and start to slowly lift that blanket cap that we put on the economy uh, so i i i think it's it 's totally appropriate to start talking about those trade offs once we have a handle on the health situation, which we don't yet have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's premature to start talking about, let's just, you know, for economic liberty's sake, uh, you know, just let her rip. That that's, that's not very sensible in an environment where we don't have the health situation under control. Once it's under control, we make those trade-offs all the time, right? We, we, uh, automobiles kill people. The flu kills people. You, we don't have a risk-free world. We, we've never demanded a risk-free world in exchange for functioning the economy, But we have demanded basic competence and basic awareness of the uh, the risks before we've you know, before we're willing to step out. So I think that's where we have to get to open up that next phase of the conversation.
0: So when you think about the future, when you think about getting through to the other side of this thing, what do you feel hopeful about in terms of the long term adaptations that will make as a result? (laughs)
1: Honestly, that's a tough question for me to answer because I'm like you, I want to find the more hopeful uh, strain of all this. But uh, so much of my bandwidth is, is thinking about the, Mm -hmm. the not so hopeful parts of this. Uh, But, but I'd say a couple things. One is if this uh, helps as an action forcing event to get us to think through what type of measures we need in place that are just part of the structure of our economy that give it more resiliency that that give us the capacity to react to unpredictable crises in a, a more fluid and forceful way, then then that is a very hopeful thing to emerge from this. It's a terrible way to learn the lesson. Uh, but if we learn the lesson, it means that we probably will not have to go through something quite as painful as this under similar circumstances again. So even if we were to be hit with another pandemic, if we have if we've gotten the the COVID playbook down and we have figured out the lessons from this one. And I think, again, we're on our way to learning some of those lessons where we have found consensus in areas that even just a couple of years ago, it would have been unimaginable to have conservative Republicans and progressive Democrats agreeing on some of the measures that have been taken, forcefully agreeing on some of the measures that have been taken. Uh, and where it resonates with me is on the, the need for simplicity, for elegant simplicity in the way we design certain policy re- responses and tools so that you don't, in a crisis like this you're not so worried about targeting and complexity you're worried about broad accessibility and speed mm-hmm. and and so there there was clearly a breakthrough on those fronts where if we can capture that for next time and again have some of those pieces in place automatically as as many economists have proposed that you know when when you see the numbers hit a certain threshold you don't have to vote it's just an automatic stabilizer that kicks mm-hmm. in uh so that so that it's part of your it's part of your brake pads as an economy. You can measure the impact of that across millions of lives, thousands of businesses, thousands of communities. That, that, that could be a very important part and positive part of the legacy of this experience. So that's really where I'm focused is thinking about how, how can we crystallize some of these experiences and lessons and apply them in a very intentional way so that the next time doesn't look like what we saw this time.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a great hope for the future. And I thank you for the time today, John. This has been, this has been great. That no, was fun. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I'm planning to continue putting out shows on a little bit of an ad hoc basis. You know, things are moving so fast and I feel like sharing information is a key to getting through this together. Um, if you have questions or things you particularly want to hear me cover, you can send me an email at michael at Be safe, stay well, and take good care of yourself. Thanks.